You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to encourage you to have your Bibles on hand as we will be in a couple of different places today. For those that have been with us over the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been discussing the topic of weariness in our Christian life and um, just the challenges that, that sometimes come with um, growing weary and doing good. Uh, we referenced Galatians 6 over the past couple of weeks. Verse 9 specifically, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we looked at that passage two weeks ago specifically, talked about as we press on to do good while waiting for Jesus to return, we must anticipate the possibilities of weariness and make intentional efforts to address it when it occurs. Paul talks about us not growing weary, and so that obviously implies taking steps to not grow weary. He goes on to talk about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So we've talked about the potential threat of weariness. As we strive to do good, as we strive to live, live faithfully, waiting for Jesus to come back, there is the potential that we grow weary in doing so. And we talked about uh, trying to identify factors that may lead us to grow weary, trying to address those factors by seeking to change ourselves, also asking others to change potentially if their actions are causing us weariness. We talked, we talked specifically in the context of our church, how the elders are in kind of a season right now of trying to fight against weariness, uh, specifically in regards to some of the tangible things that we think of when we talk about the success of a church, uh, the attendance on Sunday mornings, the giving of the church throughout the month, visitors returning or not returning to our church, people being involved in service opportunities within our church. Um, and so we talked about kind of uh, reaffirming a desire to be involved in those things as church membership. Last week, we looked specifically at that chapter in Second Thessalonians 3, and we talked about how our time in the Word, our time in prayer, our time with others will determine whether we stand firm or grow weary in our personal life. So I kind of walked you through 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3. We looked at how our salvation enables us to stand firm, that our obedience empowers us, that we have a responsibility to obey God's revealed word if we're to stand firm and not grow weary, that we're to be in prayer about our, our standing firm versus growing weary, that we're to be in prayer ourselves, we're to be in prayer for others, we're to ask others to pray for us. And then we also talked about our friendships being a key factor in whether we stand firm or grow weary, that we have a responsibility to surround ourselves with people that are worth imitating, people that aren't growing weary in their good doing, uh, so that we can aspire to be like them, so that we can pursue Christ as we follow those type of friendships. And so from an application standpoint, last week we talked about obeying the word. Am I seeking to do my part in standing firm by applying the word that is being taught on Sunday mornings? Ask for help. Am I seeking God's power by praying against weariness in my own life? And, uh, you know, last week I told you as elders, we humbly ask for you to be in prayer for us that we would fight against weariness. And then number three, learning from others. Am I seeking to surround myself with others who will help me not to grow weary? Today we continue this idea of, of growing weary in the midst of um, our Christian labor. So I want us to look at our summary sentence real quick. It says, at times my Christian labor may feel in vain, but the assurance of the resurrection should vote, motivate me to press on in obedience, knowing that rest and validation will come. At times my Christian labor may feel in vain, but the assurance of the resurrection should motivate me to press on in obedience, knowing that rest and validation will come. For our kids, Jesus promises that our work for him will not be in vain. So we're talking about the threat of weariness. Paul talks about it, challenges us not to grow weary, implying that there is the possibility that we would grow weary in our Christian labor, in our Christian service. Today, we look at the fact that um, there's some key passages in Scripture that, that motivate us or tell us why we should be motivated to press on and to not grow weary in our labor. One being the resurrection, that the resurrection should motivate us to press on in obedience. And, and we'll see that that's tied to understanding that rest is coming and ultimately validation is coming for our efforts. Last week, I told you that I, that I wanted to walk you through 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3 and, and basically just kind of share with you my 
my studies from last week, and they were studies that were simply me looking at the text and not really bringing in extra sources and, and extra opinions that I really just wanted to, to sit down and study God's word and, and really just draw out principles based on things that I was being challenged by. Today, I want to do something similar, but not staying in one passage. I, I want to share with you just some personal fruit from, from my studies this week of, of looking at the concept of Christian labor in the New Testament. What does the Bible say about Christian labor and what it looks like to continue in that labor versus growing weary in that labor? All right, so, so Christian labor, what does that mean? What are we talking about when we talk about Christian labor? I want to define that term for you today because we're going to reference back to it and I want you to see yourself involved in Christian labor. This is not just the elders. This is not just deacons. Um, this is every Christian uh, is involved in Christian labor. What do we mean by Christian labor? We mean the effort put forth to see an individual come to glory in the joy of knowing Christ. The effort that we put forth to see an individual or to see individuals come to glory in the joy of knowing Christ. Ultimately, it's the effort that we put forth to see individuals appreciate, appreciate or experience the joy of knowing Christ, to glory in that, to, to find joy in that, to find favor in the aspects of knowing Christ. For our kids, it's my efforts to help others know Jesus more. So when we talk about Christian labor, we are simply uh, talking about an effort that we put forth to cause others to come to know Jesus more. And the New Testament's filled with passages that, that talk about this being our purpose for still being on this earth, right? That the way that we live, the way that we work, the things that we do, the choices that we make, they're meant to cause unbelievers to come to an understanding of who Jesus is, to come to an understanding of the gospel, right? The way that we live, the way that we react to circumstances, the choices that we make, all those things are meant to point people to Jesus. We've talked about the fact that our marriages are meant to point people to Jesus. The way that a husband loves his wife and the way that a wife loves her husband, it's meant to picture the gospel to us, to draw people to salvation. All right, so when we talk about Christian labor, and we're going to see that this aspect of labor, again, is mentioned throughout the New Testament, that a Christian is involved in, in a, a Christian type of labor, and what we mean by that is the effort to see other individuals come to glory in the joy of knowing Christ. Let me reference Philippians chapter 2 for you, because I got this definition basically from meditating on Paul's description of his own life and his own ministry. Philippians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, in verse 21, actually Philippians 1 verse 21, not 2, Philippians 1 verse 21. You'll remember, uh, for those that have studied Philippians, for those that have been, been around me long enough to have gone through our study in Philippians, Paul was in jail. He was imprisoned for his gospel ministry. And so he's wrestling through the, the joy of being in prison. He's, he's referenced the idea that there are people who are hearing the gospel that otherwise would have never heard the gospel. So, so he finds joy and uh, approval from God, even though he's in prison. So he's not questioning God's goodness. He's not angry at God for his devotion to the gospel, causing him to end up in jail, right? He's, he's, he's rejoicing in what God is doing. But there is this aspect of where he desires to go and be with Christ. Um, he's not scared of death, and so he doesn't know for sure if he's getting out of this prison or not. He, he tends to think so based on how he writes, but he ultimately knows that his, hands, or his life is in the hands of God. And he says in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Okay, there's that idea of Christian labor. He says, man, I, I want to die and be with Christ. That, that's, that's tremendous gain for me. But I also want to live in the flesh because it also means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. All right, so... He ties the fact that his, his fruitful labor is not, hey, I want to go and be with Christ, but I also want to stay here and work my job because I've got fruitful labor where I'm making a lot of money and, and really enjoying life. No, he connects his fruitful labor to other people here, right? He says, it's more necessary on your account if I stay here in the flesh. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, so as, as I'm kind of wrestling through my own labor and my own weariness, my studies led me to Philippians 2 because I wanted to understand Christian labor a little bit more. And here Paul references his life being a type of labor, but he separates it from like his, his tent-making type occupation. He says, my labor that I'm referencing, the reason that I would want to stay here on this earth is for, for you, for other people, for this labor, this fruitful labor. And he defines that for us and says that he's convinced he will stay and continue here for the progress and the joy of others in the faith to give them ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, so, so Paul's defining for us our purpose as Christians. Our purpose as Christians is to help others come to a deeper knowledge of Christ as we ourselves are coming to a deeper knowledge of Christ, right? Because Paul references in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, how this looks for his own self. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has no reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? Paul's describing his own purpose in life is to know Christ. Everything else doesn't really count in comparison to knowing Christ, pursuing Christ. He wants to know the power of the resurrection so that he can fully share in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him in his death. Man, Paul says, I want to understand the power of the resurrection and how it shapes my life today in that the Holy Spirit has resurrected me to a new life where, where I'm making choices and decisions that defy the sin nature that I was born with. But I also want to know the power of the resurrection in that it gives me great hope for my future so that I can suffer right now. I can die in prison right now and my joy is not affected. By any means possible, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. So we think, we think in terms of Christian labor, it's my effort to put forth, uh, the effort that I put forth to see an individual come to glory in the joy of knowing Christ with an end goal of seeing others attain the resurrection of the dead with us, right? Like, why do I want you to glory in the, in the joy of knowing Jesus Christ? Because I want you to attain the resurrection of the dead as much as I want to attain the resurrection of the dead, right? Like, I want to persevere and make it to the end, right? I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of the resurrection in my life. I want to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. I want to be so bought into the sovereignty of God that if it leads me to die here on this earth, to suffer through trials and to die through persecution, that I'm okay with that because I have the hope of the resurrection. I want to make it to the end. I want to attain the resurrection of the dead. It gives me great hope to think about the day that Jesus comes back and put an end to death, puts an end to sin and death and suffering. I want to be there on that day. Paul says, and I want to bring as many people as I can with me. Right? He says, I want to go ahead and go forward into that plan. I want to go ahead and be with Jesus. I want to wait for the resurrection with Jesus. But I know it's good for me to stay right here too because it means you will further progress in your joy in the faith. You will come to glory in Christ more through my ministry to you. Again, this isn't just something that's obligated to elders and deacons within the church. This is every one of our responsibilities to know Christ and to make him known to other people. So when we talk of Christian labor, we talk about growing weary. This is what we're talking about growing weary in right now, right? Like it's not that I need a vacation. It's not that I need a break. It's that, man, I'm trying to labor. I want to labor. I want to put forth great effort 
to help people come to know Jesus more. And it's, it, can be, it can be tempting to grow weary in the midst of that if we're not seeing that type of progress that we long for, the type of progress that we want in the life of somebody else. All right? The end goal of our Christian labor to see others attain the resurrection of the dead with us. As I was meditating again on Christian labor this week, it led me to um, several different passages of Scripture that I want to reference to you. And I just simply looked up the words labor in, in my ESV search app. And so I was able to draw myself to different passages that I just really wanted to understand. What, is, what does Paul and the other New Testament writers have to say about our Christian labor, um, our, our work for, for ourselves and for others to know Jesus? And so it led me to, to, to seeing a couple of things that I want to share with you. First of all, sin poses a real threat for our Christian labor to be in vain. Sin poses a real threat for our Christian labor to be in vain. For our kids, sin is a threat to ruin our work for God. Sin poses a real threat for our Christian labor to be in vain. So why would one grow weary in their well-doing? Why would one grow weary in laboring for Christ? It's because we don't see the type of things that we desire to see from our Christian labor, right? We're, we're laboring to see people know Christ more and to glory in the joy of knowing Christ more and to attain the resurrection of the dead. And, and if we start to believe that, man, our efforts just aren't producing, like our efforts aren't pushing people to know Christ more, or at least we don't feel like they are, what would, what would be the reasoning for that? I think sin is the, is the real threat to causing us to think that our Christian labor may be in vain. First of all, this could be in regards to false teachers, people believing other things than what we're trying to teach them or what we're trying to communicate to them. Paul felt this in Galatians chapter 4. And again, Paul may have been the uh, perfect person to speak on or to challenge us in not growing weary in our, in our well-doing because I imagine at times he felt very weary and had to battle against the temptation to feel weary in his own labor for others. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, "'I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave.'" though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain." See, Paul's concerned about their understanding of their relationship to the law and to some of the things that they had, they had previously learned, and, and now some things were being uh, inappropriately uh, pushed back on them. And, and Paul's concerned. He's like, man, I've been, teaching, I've been teaching you this. I've been teaching against some of this thought pattern, and yet I see you going back to it. Man, that can be extremely discouraging to be pouring into somebody else. And again, we're not just talking about pastors here. All of us have the responsibility to make disciples. All of us have the responsibility to invest in others. All of us have the responsibility to communicate Christ. And it can be discouraging to be putting forth great effort, great effort into somebody and to see them returning to the things that you've counseled them against. Paul says, man, I, I, I'm starting to wonder, like, have I labored over you in vain? Have I put forth great effort only to see you not respond to that effort? He says, I'm concerned. He says, I, I, I want to know from you, have I labored in vain over you? Your, your actions are starting to make me believe that. These people were, were giving themselves back to false teachings and false teachers, uh, people that were deviating these people from the teachings they were hearing from Paul. Sin poses a real threat to our Christian labor, feeling like it's in vain. Number two, the allure of sin and weariness of trials can cause our labor towards others to be in vain. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we, went, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith 
that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Remember, when we studied Thessalonians, this is Paul trying to get back to this church that he helped plant, and Satan has been hindering him from being able to do that. We talked about Satan hindering Paul from being able to go where he wanted to go and to do the type of ministry that he wanted to do. And so Paul's saying, when I could stand it no longer, man, we just had to, we had to do something, and so we sent Timothy ahead to you to encourage you in the midst of your afflictions. For when we were with you, verse 4, we kept telling you beforehand that we are to suffer affliction just as, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Why? For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Man, Paul, Paul's confessing to this church. He says, I'm worried that all the effort, all the time, all the attention that I've given to you is going to be ruined by the tempter tempting you in the midst of trials to abandon everything that you've been taught. He says, I've given great effort. I've put forth great effort to pour into you, right? Like, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to make it to the end. I want you to attain the resurrection of the dead. And I'm fearful that the tempter has come in and tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I mean, Paul's presenting what seems to be a real threat here, that sin poses a threat to our Christian labor that our Christian labor could be in vain if the tempter comes in and through, the, uh, through the, the difficulty or the weariness of trials could lead people astray. False teachers, the allure of sin, weariness, sin and trials causing our labor to feel like it's in vain because people respond uh, in, the, in the wrong way to these things. Number three, failure to pursue sanctification can cause our labor towards others to be in vain. Back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, that goes back to that idea of Christian labor, right? Like our, our job is to push people to know Christ and to glory in Christ, right? We're to shine as lights in the midst of a, of a crooked and twisted generation. How do we do that? We don't grumble and complain about things, right? We don't grumble and complain about things at work. We don't grumble and complain about our circumstances on social media. We live differently. Lost people see how we react to things differently than, than, than they do. We are shining as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Why? So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Right? Paul's calling these people to, to live out their sanctification, to, to pursue sanctification, to do what Scripture tells them to do, right? Like to be the type of people that Scripture wants them to be, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, to shine as lights in the world, to hold fast to the word of life, why? Because Paul says, when Jesus comes back, I want you standing there with me. I, I want you standing there with me. I don't want to look around and say, where are all the people that I poured my life into? Like, that they wandered away from the faith, whether it was for false teaching, whether it was sin, whether it was trials that, that caused them to give up on the faith, whether it was just simply not pursuing sanctification and, and not working out their salvation, he says, I want to get to that day where I look around and say, here's the fruit of my labor. Here are the people that I've poured my life into, that, that they've attained the resurrection of the dead. They are here on that great day. Jesus has come back. And in the twinkling of an eye, we are all being given new bodies together. Paul says, I don't want to labor in vain. I want you there standing with me because you pursued sanctification. False teachers can cause our Christian labor to feel like it's in vain. The allure of sin 
people wandering back to the things that we've counseled them against. The weariness of trials can cause our labor to feel like it's in vain. Failure to pursue sanctification can cause our labor towards others to be in vain. Number four, our own pride and self-reliance can cause our labor towards others to feel like it's in vain. And this is a good reminder for us as elders in our context too. Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Man, I was reading an interesting article by John Piper on this passage. As I'd kind of finished up my studies, I was just reading through some things that I had saved and came across an article where he talks about the idea that, um, you know, some of us may get up early and may work long hours and go to bed late at night. And, and, and there's nothing against doing that scripturally. But he said, if your motivation is to do so out of fear of what man will think of you, out of, uh, out of a desire for your own glory, like basically you're pushed to work hard because you want others to think well of you, that, that you're eating the bread of anxious toil, that, that you're building the house, but you're doing so in vain because you're not reliant upon Christ in faith. Uh, you're, you're not working for him. Instead, you're working for your own glory. In fact, in my notes, I put, do I labor hard for my own glory or for the good of others, right? Like, and in my context, let me give it to you. Like, do I want a lot of people here on Sunday morning because I want to look like a successful pastor or is it because I want a lot of people to attain the resurrection of the dead with me on the day that Jesus comes back? Right? Do I want people to give to our church so that we can do immaculate things in this community to make me and our elders look like superior church planters to other people? Or do I want it to be done for the good of others in our church that need help at various times throughout the year? Right? Like, do I want to build the house for, for my glory or do I want to build it for Christ's glory? Because if it's for me, then it's in vain. Right, like I, I can be very busy and I can put forth great effort and I can call you to do great things. But man, if it's motivated out of pride and self-glory, then it's all in vain, even if I get the results that I'm asking for. Right, like even if you start to respond and, and do the things that I say would encourage greatly your elders, if it's for my glory, if it's out of own pride and selfish ambition, it too would be in vain at that point. Man, sin poses a real threat for our Christian labor to be in vain not only from outside sources of false teachers and sin and weariness causing people to be led astray, not only from the lack of motivation to pursue sanctification, but man, I can mess this up, right? Like I can mess this up. If it's all about me and my desire for glory, then it's all in vain as well. Sin poses a real threat for our Christian labor to be in vain. But number two, the resurrection guarantees that our Christian labor will not be in vain. The resurrection guarantees that our Christian labor will not be in vain. I mean, I was really encouraged when I came across um, this passage because I don't know that I'd ever really connected it to, I don't know that I ever connected 1 Corinthians 15 to the ideas of weariness and, and persevering in our Christian labor. 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, a passage that's very heavy about the resurrection, and it helps us to see that our, our, our labor is validated, and it also helps us to see our motivation behind our labor. First of all, Christ's resurrection validates our Christian labor. And I want to read through, um, I'm going to take some time here. I want to read through the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there because we're going to read through this chapter, and it's a little long. But the reason I want to read through the entirety of it is because at the end of the chapter, we have the word, therefore, and that always means, in light of what I've just told you, now this is true, or now do this. And so I want to make sure that we understand the end of the chapter in the context that it was written in. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. This is, this is him communicating the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Right? This is, this is a, an important passage for uh, Christian apologetics because this helps us to understand the validity of the resurrection, right? That, that Christ appeared to many people, many people, and at the time it was written, they were still alive, right? So, so Paul's basically saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, go talk to the 500 people who saw him at one time together alive, most of them are still alive. Most of them can still verify that claim, right? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he's addressing a false teaching going around that that Christians would not be raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Right? So, so Paul's saying if the resurrection is not true, then our, then our labor is in vain, which implies if the resurrection is true, then our labor is not in vain. Right? So as we talk about growing weary and well-doing, it, it helps to be reminded here that our labor is not in vain. Why? Because the resurrection happened. Right? Christ is at work, and Christ is saving people for his glory. Christ is at work and will accomplish his work He verifies that by the resurrection. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about about God that that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So he's, he's talking about that principle of Adam commits sin, and so we all become sinful. But through Christ, Christ is raised from the dead. Therefore, if we are aligned with Christ, we too shall be raised from the dead. Um each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. That's a fancy way of saying that God is using the Son to bring everything in subjection to Christ so that Christ can then turn it over to the Father, right? So through the resurrection, Christ has won this great victory and he's giving all things to his Father. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Again, he's just reminding them, man, if the resurrection isn't true, then why am I willing to endure persecution for it? Right? Like if I don't have hope of life after death, why would I give myself into a situation that could cause me to die? I, mean, I should just be eating and drinking and enjoying life if there's nothing after this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. 
There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Man, he's just reiterating the hope that we have of resurrection, that Jesus is coming back for us. We've borne the image of Adam, we will bear the image of Christ. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immorality. Immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, he's just poured out all kinds of gospel truths here about Jesus coming to die for our sins. He's come to make resurrection possible through his own resurrection for all those that put their faith and trust in him, right? That we have this hope of a different type of body that is to come that will enable us to be with him forever. Verse 58, therefore, man, because of all of that, because of all of that great plan of God that is coming to fruition, where God is bringing everything in subjection to himself. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Man, we are working for an individual. We are working for a a creator of this universe. We are engaged in activity that submits to his plans. It's never going to be in vain, right? Like when we put forth effort to know Christ ourselves and to help others know Christ, it's never in vain. It's never in vain because the resurrection guarantees that. He says, if there's no resurrection, man, everything we're doing is in vain. But because there is a resurrection, press on in making Christ known to others. Your labor is not in vain. Christ's resurrection validates our Christian labor. Number two, the believer's future resurrection motivates our Christian labor. Your labor is not in vain. And as Paul, as I was studying this passage, this is what led me to the Philippians two passage or um, the Philippians two or three, um, where where Paul is saying, "Man, I want to attain the resurrection myself." Like, I want to know that type of power. I want to attain the resurrection because he knows what the resurrection looks like from 1 Corinthians 15. Man, he has this great hope of standing there when Jesus comes back. He wants to attain that resurrection. He wants to persevere to the end, and he wants to bring others alongside him in doing that. All right? The implication for us then, in the end, the Lord measures our faithfulness in labor, not in success. In the end, the Lord measures our faithfulness in labor, not in success. Meaning, God's not interested in in the success of our labor. He's interested in the faithfulness and the perseverance of our labor. Right? Like, we don't get judged at the end as to how successful we were in our labor. It's how faithful we were to the labor. Again, labor being that effort to draw people to know Christ Isaiah 49 is a great passage because here's a prophet who was told to go to preach repentance to a group of people that were not going to repent. Look what Isaiah says in 49.4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. He's saying, man, I don't see a whole lot of fruit from my labor. I feel like this has all been in vain. 
Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. He's saying, it feels like it's in vain, but it's not in vain because I've done exactly what God has asked me to do. We get a similar encouragement in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God's not unjust. He doesn't, he doesn't overlook the effort and the work that we put forth, the love that we show to others. Even if it feels like it's in vain sometimes, even if it causes us to grow weary at times, God doesn't overlook the effort that we put forth to, to, to have others know him. It's not in vain. It's not in vain because he doesn't measure our faithfulness by our success. He measures our faithfulness by our faithfulness to the labor. In um, Revelation chapter 14, a passage that we'll get to soon, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She had made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his head, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. In light of that coming judgment, in light of that coming judgment, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Man, this is an encouraging passage to me because it's it's a reminder to us that rest is coming from all of the effort that we put forth. There's coming a day where we won't have to work to make Christ known in the lives of others. He will be known in their life, right? The resurrection of the dead will occur, and we will know him as we were intended to know him. And we'll rest from the labors. We'll rest from fighting against false teachers. We'll rest against fighting from sin. We'll rest from having to encourage people through trials. We'll rest from our own pride and selfish ambition of of trying to make Christ known without it being for our own glory. We'll be able to rest from all that. And the encouragement that that I see in this passage, again, we rest from our labors because our deeds follow us. Again, the measure of success here is not our, our fruit from our labors, but our faithfulness to our labors, that we continue to persevere in laboring to make Christ known to others. And, and at times it may seem fruitless. At times it may feel weary. It may, at times it may feel in vain. But rest is coming, and God honors. Remember Hebrews chapter 6, he does not overlook the effort that we've put forth to serve him. From an application standpoint, um, I want us to go back for the four things that we've been talking about, things that have been kind of a source of weariness for us as elders and, and why we desire these things for you. In an effort to work for your attainment of the resurrection, we as elders desire to see these things in your life. Now, I had you to discuss this morning about legalism because these things could easily become legalistic measurements in your life, right? Like, okay, I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to give money to the church. I'm supposed to sign up when we have service opportunities. I'm supposed to say hey to a visitor. Right? You can check those things off, and it'd be very legalistic. 
right? The idea that you're trying to gain the approval of the elders or that you're trying to gain the approval of God by keeping a set of rules. There's, there's different forms of legalism. One, that you're trying to do that for the approval of, of someone or for something, right? There's another version of that where you're, you're doing it outwardly but not inwardly, right? Like the Pharisees were guilty of this. They kept rules and regulations, but they missed the heart behind it, right? Like here's why you're supposed to do these things out of a motivation to love others. If you're just keeping these things, like you can show up at church and, and we can have everybody show up at church, but if everybody's attitude stinks about being here, and there's no desire to love and fellowship with each other, then, then it really doesn't matter how many of you come, right? Like, like we've checked off a box, great, we had perfect attendance today, but everybody hated being here, right? Like that's a legalistic approach to this. I can do this, I can show up to serve at Light Up Sonoy, but I'm gonna grumble and complain while I'm there? Well, then we really didn't accomplish what we desired, right? Like as elders, we want these things for you, not to make us feel better, not so that we can glory in being good pastors and elders. We want these things for you because we believe each of these things gets you to the end where you attain the resurrection from the dead. Not because you earn the right to be saved. You are showing yourself to be saved through these things. You are keeping yourself faithful to the end through these things. First of all, meeting with other believers in this church regularly to fight sin and false teaching right? False teaching could lead you astray. It could cause our labor to be in vain. We want you meeting regularly together with other believers in this church, Sunday mornings, small groups, accountability groups. Why? To fight sin, because Hebrews 3.12 says that we're to exhort one another, right? We exhort each other every day. Why? So that there's not a, a spirit of sinfulness that springs up. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do I want you here on Sundays? To listen to the, my hard preparation for a sermon? If that's, the, if that's the truth, then I'm building a house in vain, right? Like if it's about making me feel good that you showed up, that I put forth this effort to prepare a sermon, by gosh, you better be here to listen to it. Man, that, that's for my glory. That's, for, that's, that's, out of vain, that's out of a vain effort. Why do I want you here on Sunday? Because I know that we're prone to have sinfulness spring up in our evil, unbelieving hearts. I know that if we don't gather, Scripture says there's a very good chance that we will wander away and we will not be gathered at the end. I want you gathering now because I want you gathered then, right? Like, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead, and I want you to attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to be able to, like Paul, look around and say, here's everybody that I poured my life into and they are here with me. I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Number two, giving your money away. Because I need a salary? Absolutely not. Right? I could get paid well from Trinity. I want you giving your money away to keep your heart set on eternal things by helping other believers in need. Not because I need your money, because I don't. I want you giving away your money so that you don't love it too much. Right? Like when I look at our giving trends, I'm not concerned about us not being able to pay the bills. I'm concerned as to where the money's going now. Like, it, it was coming in, and now it's not. Is that a sign that we're loving earthly things too much? Are we hanging on to it for reasons that we don't need to? Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, right? Like we're supposed to work hard enough to where we have extra to give away. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Man, I want you guys to be empowered to give your money away because you're content with what you have and you trust God to take care of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 describes a group of people that were willing to give their money away, and it was a sign of their sanctification. It was a sign that God was at work in their life. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia for a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You go on to read through there, 
It talks about it being a sign of grace in the life of a believer for him to give away money. I say this not as a command, verse 8, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. In this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Which act? The act of giving your money to help those in need. I don't want your money because I need it. I want you to give your money away so that you keep your heart set on eternal things and serving and loving others. Number three, serving alongside other believers in this church to pursue sanctification. Romans six nineteen. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. One way we pursue sanctification is we give ourselves, our bodies, our resources, our stuff, we give it now to righteous purposes. We serve with the things that God has given to us. We used to be enslaved to things. We used to be enslaved and, 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 um, to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Now present your members, your bodies, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I put the verse back up there again that we've already read um, from Revelation that, that our, our first works should not start to decrease. That the, the acts of service that we're involved in should exceed where we first started. Why? Because I want you pursuing your sanctification. Number four, welcoming visitors to our church to increase our influence. Man, hospitality is as old as God's people. In Leviticus 19, as the nation of Israel is coming into the promised land, God gives them instructions about visitors and tells them why. Verse 33, when a stranger, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He basically says, when you're in the company of strangers, you, you, should, you should give them hospitality. You should treat them well. Why? Because you used to be a stranger. You used to know what it felt like to be alienated or disconnected. That's, that's in the Old Testament context. But if you read in Ephesians chapter 2, it describes us as Christians at one point being strangers, just like he describes Israel being strangers in Egypt. Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 13.1, we used to be strangers, and now we are obligated to, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. He says, you used to be strangers, now take care of strangers. Show hospitality to them, remembering that you too used to be a stranger. Romans chapter 12 tells us to be intentional in how we seek to do this, right? Romans 12, verse 12 through 13. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. I told you, legalism, you can, you can try to do it for the approval of others. You can do it outwardly, but not do it inwardly. The other form of legalism is to impose upon people things that are not in Scripture. We're not guilty of doing that here. Right? These things are told to us to do them in Scripture as believers. We are to pursue these things. We are to do these things. Do we run the risk of this becoming legalistic? Yeah. If we simply do this to check off a box, then yes, absolutely. But if we see these things as connected to our ability to stand on the day that Jesus comes back, man, we pursue these things with the right motives. We want to do these things to know Christ more, to glory in the joy of knowing Christ. Christ. We want to do a better job of, of letting you guys know how we're doing in these areas. And so something that we put together, and I want to show you an example of this, just so when we start giving this to you, you know exactly the purpose of it. And we'll close with this. Um, 
we want to start giving you, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a great name for it yet. We, we took it from something we saw at Chick-fil-A that was called a scorecard. Basically, it was a monthly assessment of how the company was doing. Right? So we took the model of that and we applied it to our church and we said, okay, we want to be able to share with you how we are doing as a church in these areas. Again, not for legalistic reasons, not to, to make you feel guilty per se, but to let you know, man, if we are not paying attention, we don't realize whether we're growing or regressing in some of these areas. Okay, So what we want to start doing monthly is posting this on the city so you can visualize what did we look like as a church last month? All right. Um, so this is what you're going to see, and it's going to be in the same format each month, and so you'll just be able to gauge how we've done. And these, these numbers aren't real numbers. I just threw some numbers in um, to get the thing designed and set up. But what you're going to start seeing is our attendance on Sunday mornings in light of the total membership of the church at that time. Okay. So you've got um, at the top underneath attendance, you're going to have a, a, a uh, a scale basically that shows how many people were here at church for the Sundays of that month. All right, you're also going to see how many people went to men's dinner and women's dinner for that month. You're going to see what percentage of people showed up at C groups for each month. All right. In addition to, you're going to see the giving reports. You're going to see how much we gave and how much we committed to give. Again, we're not telling you how much to give. You're telling us how much you intend to give. So it acts as an accountability report. Are we faithfully giving as we committed to give? You'll also see the yearly giving, what we've actually given, and then what we've committed to give. You'll also see there underneath just kind of a, a description of where we're at in the area of service. That'll change each month. Like for this month, what we would probably do is have something about how many people are signed up to work at Light Up Sonoy, just so you know, just so you're, the, you're aware of what this looks like. Um, from a hospitality standpoint, keeping track of how many people have visited our church each week, how many people are coming back, and then also making you aware how many members uh, are in the process of membership, how many families or individuals are in the process of membership. Again, we want you to kind of be aware of the health of our church, not to use this in a legalistic manner of, well, I got to do these things because I'm being told to do these things, but instead to see these things in light of what Scripture says, that these things are healthy for you as a believer to attain the resurrection of the dead for us to see how we're doing as a church, and man, for you to use this as an encouragement with each other. Because again, Christian labor is not just for pastors, it's not just for elders, it's for all of us. We are all working together so that we know Christ more. All right, from a family worship question standpoint, number one and two, talking about this with your kids or you personally kind of wrestling back through this, why is it important for Christians to go to church regularly? Why is church attendance important for a believer? Um, number two, why is it important for Christians to give money to the church? What are some tangible reasons? How do we motivate ourselves in these two areas to continue coming and to continue giving? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then Tyson's going to close us out in song. God, I pray that you would keep us encouraged as we strive to, to know you more in our life, as we strive to make you known to others in our life. God, we're well aware that there are temptations to grow weary in our well-doing, uh, to strive to fight against sin and to strive to walk in the Spirit can, can oftentimes be a weary, uh, a weary track. And God, we're certainly aware that there are other uh, belief systems out there that would cause people to wander and to stray, which would make our labor feel in vain. The allure of sin, the, the weariness of trials. God, that could cause us to to feel weary and trying to pour into the lives of others. It, it may cause us to not want to attend accountability groups or C groups because we feel like we're, we're not having a, a, an effect or an impact. God, I pray that you'd guard us and protect us from wanting to live for you for our own glory in some distorted way. Uh, Father, we know that that would certainly lead to our efforts being in vain. God, I pray for us as, as a church that you would help us to see the things that we're talking about and why they're important. God, we want to see great attendance when we gather. Not so we can look good as a church, but because we know gathering together protects us from sin. And to not gather together opens us up to the possibilities of an unbelieving heart. God, help us to, to see as a church that, that we have a responsibility to give our money away so that we don't grow attached to this world. Not because our church needs our money, but God, help us to realize there are people in our church that are in need. And when we give, 
we as a church can help meet those needs. God, I pray that we would be intentional to carve out time in our schedules to serve in ways that gives us nothing back in return. Help us to see that you have saved us for good works, that you have saved us to to give ourselves as members of righteousness now. God, help us to fight against selfish selfish tendencies to want to use our time for our purposes. God, help us to remember that, that we were once alienated from this church family not in the context of sovereign hope, but we were aliens to the, the, the universal family of, of yours and that you saved us and brought us into that. And so God, I pray anytime a visitor walks in here, we would remember our own estrangement that occurred in time past and, and that you saved us out of that and that you brought us into this family. God, help us to see this local church as a, as a, as a context, as a way to demonstrate hospitality from the, from the global church. And God, I pray that we would be very welcoming to visitors that we would seek to show hospitality to others, realizing that as people come to visit our church, it's more people that we have an opportunity to help them know you more. God, help us not to grow weary in our doing good. Help us to stand firm, to persevere. Help us to realize that we will not run in vain or labor in vain because you rose from the dead and you are coming back for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.